0: All right, Uh, cool. So we are on the next episode of the work item. So it's been, what, two weeks since we last recorded, which in podcast uh, ages, this is years of (laughs) actual podcast material. And uh, we have a great guest today. So uh, Tarun Gangwani, welcome Tarun. Hey, how are you guys? All right, so Tarun, tell us more about what you do.
1: Well. Currently, uh, as of this week, I'm the product manager for community and the social graph at Twitch, Um, and previously to that, I was working on developer experience products, Uh, but sadly, I've made the decision to move on to probably what I would consider to be a dream opportunity, which is working as PM number one in a startup called Sanity.io. Sanity is doing what Twilio did to the SMS space. They are doing that to the content management CMS space. So pretty excited uh, to join that team starting next week.
2: Now, Tarun, I know you uh, personally. I mean, we met many years ago, and I think that it's been wonderful to watch your transition from um, the design world. So again, just to give a little backstory here, you started in the world of you know design, right, as a designer, and you've Mm -hmm. kind of transitioned into product ownership, um, career leadership, that type of thing. Would you like to speak on that a little bit more?
1: Sure. I mean, first of all, I didn't even know that I wanted to even do design. So my background's in like cognitive science research. And like, I thought I was just going to go on the track of doing science for science sake and really, you know, investigate the nature and wonder of the brain. And then I kind of realized uh, being in a lab wasn't fun, and so I wanted to go do hands-on, like, active discovery and work on things and put them out in the world. And so I think a lot of that comes from my dad, who is a serial entrepreneur based in uh, Indiana. But um, when I saw his kind of trajectory and saw how he worked in tech and was always kind of influenced by tech, I knew that whatever I wanted to do was something intersecting technology and intersecting like how we think, and so I stumbled upon the practice of design actually. Um, but I had always had in the back of my mind like why things are made and the business of how things are made and like how all of that comes together. So while I started my career in design and had the fortunate opportunity to join one of the earliest cohorts of IBM Design, which is now five thousand people around the world. Um, since that time, I. Always had a planned objective to move into product management and had the opportunity to do so within IBM. Which, if anybody is to go join product management, I think one of the best ways is to transition within the company, which we can talk about. But um, then moved into startup world, then moved into Twitch, and now here I am today. So it was uh, not a, it was somewhat of a like a path that I knew I wanted to do, but I didn't really know how to get there until I started walking it on my own. So yeah.
0: This is fascinating. So you said you made a transition from startup, corporate, and then back to startup. So let's talk about your first jump when you went from startup to corporate. What were the things that you think are different that you had to adjust to? So actually,
1: I went from corporate, which was IBM, then moved to startup, which is Grok then moved into, I would say it was more like scale-up, growth-up, which is Twitch, but Twitch is owned by Amazon, which is corporate. Yeah. And now right. I'm moving back into startup as uh, employee 38. So um, I've seen every scale at this point from a product perspective, and I think – the difference between going from corporate to like person number one at a startup is way different than corporate to going as like 38 or 40 like it kind of depends on the series level of funding it depends on whether they have product market fit it depends on their customer base it depends on a lot of things and so my journey from bouncing back and and kind of pinballing back and forth between those two things is going to be different from someone else but my personal take is When you're at a corporation and you're contributing as a team member, if something messes up on your product or something doesn't work out, it's not going to make a major dent in how the corporation runs. At the end of the day, there's still a solid customer base. There's still a core competency it has. And so the level to which a person can make an impact is kind of small, right, versus like at a startup any move or decision you make can rapidly change the trajectory of the company. And so you have to be much more mindful and I would say kind of lean in one sense as to deciding to pick the right things because if you pick the wrong thing, you may have set a path and a precedent down that you know would be hard to come back from. Not impossible because startups can move quickly, but, you know, uh, for every startup that moves quickly, there are startups moving 10x faster than you. Versus at the corporate level, the decisions you make, the dividends, if you've made the right decision, don't happen within a like year or year and a half. So I think the scale and pace is just dramatically different.
2: Now, you also mentioned that you were in one of the first cohorts at, at IBM in that kind of design vertical. What was that like? Because um, it's a corporate, it's a mega corporation, but then you have like this... It's kind of like a cell inside that's smaller and not maybe as built up.
1: Yeah, I mean, they say that, right? That when you join a corporation, um, you'll end up joining like a mini startup within the corporation or like a mini venture. At this point, most companies don't act as monolithically. They all have like different bets that they're going after. So IBM, uh, the way they did IBM design was pretty interesting. They hired 40 people into this cohort, all of us like fresh grads and said, we're going to give you the keys to some of our most critical areas of the business that need the most design attention, which I'm floored just thinking about that. That's just nuts. But like, they put me and like four other people on uh, the beginnings of their platform as a service offering. Now it's a major centerpiece of their IBM strategy, IBM Cloud. And so when we started, we were in a bunch of conference rooms in Austin, Texas, no crazy studio no like built out thing and we all just had pen and paper and we were figuring this out we went to developer hackathons and like observed people go like 36 hour stretches code and like we were just learning the space and then learning how to apply our design skills in this new thing so it was very scrappy it was like very startupy. y yes we had infinite resources in one sense but we had to make <laughs> a pretty big case for it so it's not like you can just say I want to do XYZ study or I want to be able to do this thing and just have it. It takes a long time to go through approvals and processes and all that stuff to get to where you need to go. Um, And I think that's another difference is like at a startup, you have your capital right in front of you. So these resources are yours. You can do with what you will. And if you make the wrong mistake, that's going to cost you. It's going to hurt your and hurt your bottom line in a way that if you do it at a corporation, it takes longer for you to receive those resources. But they're yours and if you burn them, it's whatever. You know what I mean? Like you'll just, you can get more, but it will take more time, you have know, to go up and down the ladder. So um, hopefully that answers your question.
2: Yeah, and and you've been working as a advisor too on the side. Um, you've been yeah. advising on product development and just processes and things like that. And so you're, you're at IBM and, and so what did you pick up there? You know, again, you were, it was younger in your career, it was earlier on. What was the value in that? What did you get out of that experience that kind of changed your view?
1: I mean, working at IBM means just putting on big boy pants and working at a company. Like Simply put, it's like learning how to the learning the basics of how to work in a corporate environment learning how to communicate with people learning how to collaborate within a team learning how businesses sell things and how you contribute to that sell process learning how customers receive your product and consume your product and make changes and adjustments as a result so it's the entire game right you're just playing the whole game but you're a cog in a big machine and so I didn't know what it even meant to build software when I started at IBM and coming out of it, I had a pretty good understanding of how things go from zero to one uh, within a large company Uh, but um, I had the itch of joining a startup because I had just hit that plateau of learning. They always say like you should leave when you feel like you've extracted whatever you've learned and I felt like I hit that point after roughly three years of being there so um the startup challenge was a whole new different challenge because it was still b2b it was still within the cloud computing space but it was your ass is on the line for every decision that you make and which is way different than working at a corporation and way different than working at a team um so that was the reason why i left and you know picked up another skill and you mentioned the advising um The advising just comes about because I like to share my thoughts and perspectives and then people come up to me and ask me for advice and I started giving them that and then it ends up turning into a a relationship that, uh, you know, is mutually beneficial, like, uh, I I try to be as open and Uh, giving as I can be because I feel like we're all a small world and we're all just trying to do the best we can and uh, sometimes that turns into professional relationships other times it's just like that was a nice back and forth have a nice day so with those advising things I have a couple one is on my LinkedIn the other one is not there yet but it's actually an indie-based company which I'm excited to put up there soon Um, but it's just because you know I have a set of perspectives and people found it Mm -hmm. interesting so yeah
0: yeah that's fascinating where you talked about the the capital aspect of things and just kind of scrolling a little bit back to what we just talked about where the biggest moat that a lot of the corporations have is that precisely the risk profile and access to capital where no matter how bad you screw up at a corporation you rarely will you know cause losses of tens of millions of dollars or tens and millions of users. So, you know, you might not have achieved the same growth targets, you might not have achieved the same financial performance, but at the end of the day, your risk profile is that of somebody that has a lot of money in the bank versus when you're a startup, yeah.
1: So like, if I were to make a decision, it's like a snowball at the top of a hill and you push it down, and it takes forever to get to the bottom. And either it's going to get to the bottom and be a massive giant like avalanche, or it would have petered out because, you know, whatever. But you don't know if your decision, you have a conjecture that that decision will become a giant snowball at the end of the hill, but you don't know. You only assume that up ahead, there's some trees over there, there's a pill over there, there's a bunny rabbit over here, and you have some guesses, right? But when you're at a startup, you're pushing it down like a little bunny hill each time and then you get bigger and bigger hills and you keep getting larger. I don't know if this analogy makes any sense, but like you start pushing it Mm -hmm. again and again and again, and it gets bigger and bigger each time. And then that scale comes into effect and all of that. But in other words, if you make a decision in an enterprise that decision from a capital perspective, you have infinite capital, but It is a small decision that could lead to either a large effect in like a few months or absolutely nothing or detrimental to the company. (laughs) You don't know. But at a startup, you're going to make a small decision with a small amount of capital, but you're going to see the results really fast. You know what I mean? You're going to know. Right. Right. Especially if you've instrumented up and down what you've built, you know right away if people are going to respond to your messaging, respond to your website, respond to your product change or not. And then you get to quickly adjust but the but the problem with that is if you make too many serially bad decisions like that, you're burning your small kindling. Now I'm gonna use a different like analogy where like if you add the wrong kindling to a fire early, it just never sparks, right? Versus mm-hmm. at a corporation, it's one giant bonfire and you can just keep adding and you don't. Right. Know right. Do. I just so, use two freaking weather analogies in a thing. How about that?
0: That was no, awesome. no that's
1: fantastic. <laughs>
2: one fire, one snow.
0: Yeah. Uh, so I actually do have a question in that regard because uh, you talked about something that I, I think is very popular these days when we talk about the bigger companies where the startup within the corporation, right? Mm-hmm. Like our team is a startup within the corporation. We, we're agile, we work fast, we're kind of detached. And if you read uh, Clayton Christensen Innovator's Dilemma, mm-hmm. one of the uh, kind of bigger uh, pieces of, insight that he provides is the fact that it's impossible to create a startup within a corporation because you always have that inertia of the company pushing down on any sort of innovation. So the examples of, you know, storage companies or uh, Kodak, when they try to come up with a digital camera, the same kind of like, no, 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 We have to protect our core business, things that we're already good at. What's your take on that? What's your take on startups within bigger organizations that have an incentive to actually preserve kind of the, what they're already doing instead of creating more risk.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, as as Christensen points out, the way to salute, solve that is to accept that you're going to cannibalize your own business and move into a different category. So you have to figure out a way to navigate supporting the legacy business, but spinning up a new thing in parallel and deciding to move forward, right? And so at IBM, the you know, elephant that can't dance supposedly, but then ended up figuring it out. They spun up a whole cloud business and said, "We are going to spin off our legacy business." They just announced this. They're spinning off their whole legacy uh, server business and going to now exclusively report on uh, their Red Hat and their cloud strategy moving forward. And so, I think that you can, you know, start like little innovation innovation centers or little ideas that can blossom into something big. But you have to be willing to double down and invest in it when you start to see some initial traction and you you certainly can't have corporate pressure, um, you know, stifle it. And so actually thinking of IBM again, the reason why IBM design even existed is because the CEO herself said, we are going to invest in this and this will make the future products of our company our legacy businesses be damned. Like that is what she started with. And you see the results of it today where they barely talk about the Z systems servers and all of that. They talk about Red Hat and cloud and stuff like that. So I think if you have top down support and grassroots uh, talent is the way that you can move forward and actually do this startup within a company. I,
2: I I like that you came at it from this angle and I it kind of spawned some other thoughts in regards to companies that acquire a uh, great example, Amazon acquiring Twitch. Mm -hmm. right so like you had this this business that like performed really really well it's a startup it got bought it got purchased it got acquired. basically everybody got kind of folded in how was that retained how was that culture retained how was the success retained how was it is that purely a scaling thing at that point you know they're saying look we're gonna top down like just acquire this company and now we're just worried about scaling it building it
1: amazon's really interesting in that whenever they make acquisitions they buy customers So they never uh, integrate them. So they've bought Whole Foods, which nothing has changed, except now you can use your credit card and get a discount. They bought Ring, which nothing has changed about Ring, except using Amazon login. They bought Twitch, which nothing has changed about Twitch, except there's Twitch Prime. And so on and so forth. So Amazon's kind of weird as an example for this whole acquire a startup and, and merge them in. There's actually yeah. like two schools, right? Microsoft, same thing. They acquired LinkedIn a long time ago. You're just now seeing some small changes to the site, but mostly nothing, right? Uh, uh, who, who else? Um, you can go on and on, but there are certain yeah. companies when they acquire them, they do, like subsume the culture, change everything about it. And that's their master plan. But there are other companies that don't choose to do it. The more interesting question is what's the right thing to do, right? And typically in that that environment, um, usually the uh, acquisition, the, the person who is acquired always ends up having the upside. It's rare that an acquirer ends up making a great acquisition, it's very rare. Think of all the acquisitions that have ever occurred yourself when was the acquirer actually better off because they did it like instagram is probably one and youtube is probably the other i can't think of another one where i've been like dang that was like a really smart act." it was like yeah cool you hired some great talent you added another feature life goes on right send grid might be another one soon but most of the time uh you they it ends up not being as great of an acquisition as you think because they don't figure out how to Build those synergies. They don't figure out how to uh, align identity. They don't figure out how to uh, insert it into their flywheel, so to speak. Right, like so. So Twitch is just now starting to get inserted into the Prime five fly, fly, flywheel, and uh, the advertising business is just now starting to become the Amazon advertising business. So it takes a long time to get there. So, um, and that's a very precarious thing to do. Did you My, when you were there? Did device. you see a
2: little bit of, like boiling the frog? Right, like we're going to start to kind of slowly integrate this product into our master uh, products?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've seen it. Uh Yeah, there's been several things that probably I can't even talk about, but there have been numerous uh, in, in endeavors to start folding Twitch stuff into Amazon uh, things. And even today, there's still some growing pains. I mean, it's not easy. So that's why I think Amazon has really kept their hands off of it for the most part, because if it ain't broke, don't fix it, just let's add the prime customer flywheel into it and see how it works, right, and and just scale it. That's that's kind of Amazon's thesis of, of this sort yeah. of thing, yeah. Yeah, I, didn't and know know, I, know, I know all
2: three of us are into gaming and I was curious to get your take too, like I always felt like it was great to have a competitor in the market and so Mixer just recently folded, right? They said, hey, we're done. We're done competing, we're not gonna bother with this anymore. What was your take on that? Like, now there's really only YouTube gaming, Twitch, and Facebook gaming, right?
1: Yeah. um, And my take is that Mixer spent a lot of content, like a ton, on, on Shroud and Ninja and made some giant bets and bet that the customer base would follow. And the thing that's great about Twitch and Amazon is their relentless focus on doing what the customer wants first and ignoring the competition entirely and saying, we're going to do the thing we think is best for our customers when we focus for them. Versus I think Mixer, they had a you know pretty good product, but it was always a me too kind of thing. Um, and mm-hmm. unless your Facebook or YouTube with large built in audiences and a massive head shoulder and torso and feet level of uh, content producers right you're not going to just buy your way into this thing um uh and there are many other small uh competitors in this live streaming space that are also not going to get there because a they lack the infrastructure and culture and b they lack the content and the talent to go with it so
0: the, the network effects which are super, super important. I think that that, that's always getting kind of ignored into the favor of you can always buy new people, but unless you have the network of users that bring in more users, you're kind of done. Yeah, and especially
1: the content providers, right? Like Twitch has a very uh, great focus on uh, small streamers and mid-sized streamers because they believe that's where the next talent is. I mean, look at Ninja. Ninja was streaming on Twitch since 2000 and whatever like 6 or something like long before he became the Ninja everybody knows and Twitch nurtured that individual and when he was bought he you know realized that home is where the heart is uh, you know that is where I have my audience my base is still there and so you know that's why he you know ended up deciding to come back after Mixer folded and it's just an example of you know being focused on your execution, focused on your culture and competition aware, but not dominating the way you think about your business.
2: Twitch is really interesting to me too, because I think, I think you said something about this the other day on your Twitter or something like Mm -hmm. we're starting to see not just gaming content appear Mm -hmm. on the platform and it's being used in ways that it wasn't originally intended. And there's even a brand shift, like it's less focused on, and discord did this, a community, you know, building website or um, service, they kind of switched their, branding and like we're positioning away from just gamers. We're not just a gamer place, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and,
1: and even today, both of them are still going to be dominant in gaming. And for the foreseeable future, uh, they will remain that way. Um, the analogy that I've heard thrown around in the company is just how Amazon started with books. It will take a while, but one day Amazon is everything. So similar with Twitch, Twitch started with gaming and one day Twitch will be all live streaming. And so that's where they're And, and we're
2: even seeing the production quality increase like drastically fast, right? With all these streams, like there's content on there that now is rivaling like you watching a Hulu show. Absolutely. Um, like the the potential there for live TV is kind of wild. Yeah, <laughs> well, even I don't think about it like that, but it could become like basically the new broadcast tool of our generation.
1: I mean, the only uh, caveat to that is uh, mobile and TikTok and all of these other ways to consume media. And the big question is, are these the same audiences? Are these two different audiences? If they're two different audiences, is that okay? Can, can a live streaming platform sustain itself or does it have to capture both?
2: Um, are, are we I, cannibalizing our business by trying to do exactly TikTok and we, when we have a Twitch too?
0: Exactly. Or we have a fantastic recent example, which is Quibi which is a startup that tried to do these bite-sized shows and their, their goal was to be essentially kind of an in-between Netflix and Twitch. And it's kind of, you know, on the go consume content and it folded because the audience just did not exist.
1: Yeah. Quibi is a weird one because Quibi did not embrace content creators who understood the medium for one and two, uh, I think that they didn't pivot fast enough with the pandemic, you know, causing challenges because a lot of what they bet on was highly produced Hollywood-based shows which take long to make. And so if you can't get a lot of content and the network effects that come out from having content providers share their communities and share with their built-in audiences, your product will not grow, which is sad because Quibi is reminds me a lot of Path where there were so many great ideas from a UX and UI perspective. Man, and there's so product. Many, yeah, we. I mean, we all think about it to this day. It's like the holy grail of great UX design and UI work, but then just like, you know, the business wasn't there. And so um, we'll, we will take a lot of lessons from what Quibi did, but um, sadly, you know, it is what it is. So. But
0: I, I think you're also getting to a very important point for product managers is... There's some tendency to kind of over-index on great design and fantastic experience and these flashy things. When in reality, if you do not have an underlying business, you do not have the network effects, it's pointless, right? Like if you look at the first application that Uber came out with, they had this very, very rudimentary, like there's a map and there's a car that shows you on the map. That's it. Nothing else, Mm -hmm. right? But if they would have spent, you know, three years trying to come up with this perfect UX that does all the map and the the estimated path and everything else, they would just never ship it. How do you strike yeah. that balance in your career?
1: I mean, Uber, uh, the user experience using that word, um, those words carefully, the experience is a person says, I need a car. They tap and using sensors on the phone, it knows where you are and then a car magically appears and you sit in it and you get out. That is a user experience. It's not what happened in the mobile phone, right? And so as a product manager, when you're thinking about UX to your point, you can't over-index on the UI, on the interface, on the interaction design. You have to think about the entire user experience. And uh, that is why in some ways my hot take is probably the user experience designers we know uh, today will all start doing product management anyway, because they have such a grasp and concept of the entire end to end and how one software fits within a journey that a person sits within, right? Like, no longer are we building things that is the singular window of thing you use, right? Like, you've got Skype over here, Courtney's talking on Discord over there, Slack might be in another window. And all of this is happening at the same time. And so whatever you build, you have to be aware of that context as a product manager and think about that as the user experience, not just like your window that, you know, happens to look great amongst everything else.
2: Your experience may be a fractional interaction a user has once every three months, like, you know, for Uber, for me.
1: Especially for business to business software. Like mm-hmm. like in some cases, that thing, that widget that you did helps that person save like 10 minutes of time, but in like a month, right? But the fun of it is, is if you do that, right, then the millions of people using that thing are suddenly you're saving 10s of millions of minutes of and are changing the way people live. Like, so that's what's fun about working on like massive scale, but like small things. But it also is a huge challenge because you have to do that in the context of everything else that is work. Um, so, I, and, and, yeah, I think about that all the time as a product manager.
0: Here's the example too, where if we think from the design perspective, like how many tools, I think this resonates with you and Courtney more so than myself, but you have tools like Sketch, Envision, right? Like Balsamic. Uh, I know designers that used uh, Illustrator and Photoshop, and then Figma came and just completely took over, right? Like uh, up until last year or maybe two years ago, if you would talk to designers, uh, they would say, you know, oh yeah, Envision has the right experience. But sometimes people don't even know what they're missing. And once Figma comes down with a product that has a fraction of functionality that say Envision has, but it executes on those core user needs, it just overshadows everything else.
1: Right. I mean, Figma knows what the job of designers are doing in the context of development and in the context of product management and excelled at that end-to-end experience versus Sketch, which is a great product. They do very well for designers in a silo. Like if I'm a designer and I'm creating like the next iOS app and you can leave me alone in a tower and one day I produce it and say, here you go, Sketch is fantastic for that. But if I'm a designer building like a quick prototype and I want to get it in front of a customer, and then I want to turn around that customer prototype and give it to my developers so they build it within an hour, Figma crushes that. And guess what speed of business we're in right now? So that's why they might.
0: So talk to us more about the velocity. And I think this is where, uh, from experienced product managers, this is something that uh, I-, I want to zero in is because... There is this balance between doing the right thing for customers, spending time on research, spending time on data, and then moving quickly enough that you deliver value and you build essentially or acquire customers from the market that you're targeting. How do you do that in your career? How do you get to that kind of Goldilocks zone of doing the right thing and moving fast?
1: Yeah, so I think it's oscillating back and forth. So you start out with a thesis about the way people live and work and think, and you say, I think it could be better. And you go find those people and you offer them this alternative. And if those people end up finding it useful, then they take it up and you have two options. You go find more of those people or you go make those subset of people their best experience possible. So you focus on conversion or you focus on retention. I think a lot of days, companies that start out are focused on retention because they want to hone the experience of the product extremely well because once you can, the internet is the ultimate distribution machine and you can go find those niche audiences anywhere around the world and then light on the conversion engine and go find more customers. I would also say that lately, the best those that have communities behind them and those that have what we uh, can think about as uh, viral growth Built-in engines, right? So, um, for example, the best example, and and this isn't my original idea. I cannot remember who thought of this, but Snapchat lenses are a great example of something that there is a sort of genus qua to how you use it, and the only way you can know is if you tell someone to go use that lens and start it, and then when they use it, they're like, "Dang, this is cool." And then they go tell someone else and they're like, well, the only way you can see it is if you use Snapchat, right? So I think when we build products today, we should think about retention. We should think about building community because once we're ready to light that on, then not only do we have a base of people that will come and join the sandbox and come build with your, and come use your product or build with your product, whatever you're making, but also it has those ability to share. The experiences are shareable and they can go out and go to other people. Um so I would say that um you're starting and focusing on quality first before you're going out and scaling and then you're kind of going back to quality and you're oscillating back and forth.
2: So I wanted to share that I've been really excited by I was originally not on the train of TikTok. So I was not like crazy about the product and I didn't think I would take off with me uh, mainly because I wasn't a, like big consumer of Snapchat or user um I get so much delight using the app, <laughs> I don't know <laughs> why, but it's so humorous and I don't know if you two um, kind of experience the same I just feel good after I'm done like maybe consuming some funny content on there. Um I think that the tuning engine is just so freaking good. Every time I open it up, it seems like it, I have a video within like one or two like slides that is like, just hits me. Um, and this goes like into like recommendation engines and like tracking user behavior. Um, are we gonna start seeing that again? More like it's. I, I've seen it, you know, on Spotify. I've seen it on Twitch a little bit, but mm-hmm. the engine feels so strong on TikTok. I don't know what it is. Is it the community created content?
1: It's um. I, it, this idea was put forth by uh, Eugene Wei and he had a thesis which basically is saying that the reason why TikTok is so great is because the design is algorithmic friendly. It is one giant video and only that video. And either you keep watching it or you swipe away. That is so great for machine learning based algorithms because it has only one signal that it cares about. Do you like this kind of video or do you not like this kind of video and it overtakes your entire focus versus The problem with Twitch and YouTube and a lot of other people is that there's too many signals at play. There's either if you liked it or did you subscribe, did you scrub it, did you not, did you click on a recommended on the right, does that make a difference? There's all these weights in in this giant machine that only a few companies like Google can take advantage of. But small startups can build similar TikTok-like experiences because they can build machine learning capabilities that are focused on that one thing at that one time. So yes, I do believe that we're gonna see more, maybe not video-based apps, but just thinking of apps in general that do one or two things extremely well, but have highly tuned that thing so that it can provide more of the same thing and you just keep getting sucked into that. And then over time, they slowly start to expand into other modalities
0: yeah and it's interesting because the the what you called out earlier is like the, the virality or the the word of mouth aspect of different products it is so um so key and so hard to acquire because this is something that it's very hard to actually buy right like as we saw with things like the the ninja and shroud kind of well content acquisitions it's not always about kind of you can buy your way into talent, you actually need people being excited about it. And I think this is where, you know, I, I personally do not use TikTok, <laughs> but uh, I, I feel like the you, you clearly see the virality of it and the fact that people just talk about it. Every time you see people discuss kind of the viral web content, it's not even like, oh, you know, I've seen an ad somewhere as I was scrolling through my Instagram feed. It's not a people told me and somebody and tried it and then they told somebody else.
2: And it's not like they're building walls either. I mean, they like it's built. It's geared for viral um, sharing. Like, like I can just export the video. I can save the video and just send it in an iMessage to my friends. Like, I can share that content anywhere, and it has a watermark on it.
0: I, I, I kind of love that. It to Twitter, like, that yeah. Like it, you, you open your Twitter feed and you see TikTok videos being posted on Twitter, and you're like, the two different networks. But there's no, yeah, there's no roadblock and saying like, no, no, no. You stay with us, right? Because Snapchat was the opposite of that when. Early on, they had, uh, you know, the, the blocking of screenshots. Like you were not able to screenshot things, and that was this served its purpose. It was meaningful for that experience at the time, but it also locked people into that tool. Versus here, it's it's the opposite. Where you see the effect of, we're open to anyone. We're gonna put our watermark. It's gonna be there. People clearly know that this is coming from TikTok. But it, it's just, it, it's fascinating. Like just this, the viral spread of this product.
1: Well, the thing about the the you have to kind of take these trajectories in context like when snapchat came out it was meant to be a private video messaging app between your closest friends and be able to just one to many communicate to a small network the then the epiphany came that people were creating content amongst their friends and were sharing it amongst each other that they needed a way to get people to keep coming back to the app and getting other people to generate that same content. Thus the Discover feed and sort of those interest based graphs were created. At that point, Facebook looked at that and said, we've got an awesome video sharing service too. Why don't we not only build a direct messaging capability but also leverage our feed and the way we produce content and copy that. TikTok said, well, we know private messaging is already a solved problem. We're not gonna start there. We're gonna start with interest-based content and build forward from that and see what the next evolution of, you know, media creation and content sharing is. So everybody has learned from each other and everybody has taken a different trajectory. And I think if we were to take that back to, you know, as a product manager, you have to be observant of the speed at which people are producing these sort of businesses and the trends that are up and coming and trends that are going to happen. Like with the iPhone and the introduction of LiDAR and AR based capability, we have yet to understand what that will do and the experiences that could be created. But you have to imagine with 100 million of these devices that are going to ship within the next year, somebody is going to create a social network or an experience that is unique to this capability that when they crack it and when they figure it out, they're the next multi-million dollar exit inevitably that Facebook acquires. unless they decide to stay indie, so, which is probably... So kind
2: amazing. of what I'm hearing there is that if you're in PM and you see an emerging tech, even if it's not clearly obvious how you're going to use it yet, you need to be like pushing your mind into that space to try and understand a little bit. like. Yeah. You know, like LIDAR, like you just mentioned, like what ideas do you have? And it's not even just your ideas. It's like, you know, anybody that is in your network, how can you start to figure out ways to kind of use that um, and leverage it in a way?
1: Uh, Well, I am not in consumer. So I think like if I were to think about it for a second, it seems to me that the advantage of LIDAR so far has been the tuning of other Um, previously hitherto, like creations that have used the camera, but because it has a better pixel mapping to space, it's optimizing that. So Snapchat's lenses are getting a lot smarter. Instagram will too. So I'm asking myself, you know, what are some optimizations of existing apps that I already have that could take advantage of if I have a camera-based app? Mm -hmm. However, if I'm thinking or divining a new experience entirely, the question I'm asking myself is, if, AR, if I'm bullish on AR in general, and this is the best technology for it, what are some products that I should create that are AR-based that are a niche, maybe, but I could find a community and build a community and kind of grow from that? I don't know um, what those are. Um, I for sure wouldn't launch anything that was location-based or anything because we're in the middle of a pandemic and all stuck at home, which is another force of a trend that is going to combat this trend. So as a PM, yeah. you're also thinking about externalities and, and opposing forces to whatever you make and navigating those as efficiently as possible.
0: I, I think an interesting take on that was with Quibi specifically, because in some discussions, the targeting was around commute, around people that are going to work, they're one, kind of going right. the consume a show on the way, there, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But then as they launched the pandemic hit so the commute disappeared. So now everyone's at home and when you're at home, I don't know about you guys, but myself if I have 10 minutes to spare on some content, I'd rather look on Twitter, I will look on some somebody's blog, I'll see what's going on. I'm not going to start a video. And yeah. just, just that disparity. I think I think Quibi still could have worked if it wasn't as
1: walled of a garden, which is why we think TikTok is interesting, is because you can just share everything in TikTok. Like, what if Quibi had negotiated that all their shows can be sh- one minute segments can be shared by anybody, right? And suddenly everyone is seeing these snippets of these hilarious shows, and then they're like, I need to go watch this whole thing, and they download Quibi. Like, like what happened?
2: Yeah, how do I get access to that? How do I do that? What? yeah people would be asking how do i get access to this what am i yeah what am i seeing what am i watching exactly
1: exactly and same with tiktok people are probably asking huh everyone's talking about that person with the welch's grape juice thing this looks cool i wonder what else is going on and then they just go download the app so yeah
0: that in itself is a crazy story and uh again it came organically right at least from what we know that this was not a it was genuine
1: and and like going back to what courtney was saying That notion of like, feel good design uh, is something that is gonna like, there are are some other interesting kind of macro trends to think about. One is like this notion of like, the anti doom scroll, like the idea that this is friendly, this is fun, this is euphoric, it's like an escape from reality, which is why gaming is because it's like a, a way to disappear and connect with your friends in a completely different space. The other is privacy-first design or security-first design, right? In a world where we're all in front of our machines and phones and we're being sensitive about what we share and we're telling our kids, like, hey, you're about to be a citizen in a world where everyone knows everything about you, that is going to matter too. So as a PM, you're not only thinking about device level and, like, technology-level opportunities, you're thinking about macroeconomic social forces at play as well. So we can keep building on this thesis. Like there are different vectors that a PM has to consider when birthing a product into a space. Those are two vectors. Um, there, there are like at least a dozen more.
0: So I'm actually curious, now that we're kind of talking about these different aspects of uh, product design, product planning, uh, you're transitioning to a startup. Tell us more about what was the motivation there and uh, kind of what led you to say, instead of jumping to another big co, you're jumping to a startup? Motivation
1: is, like I mentioned at the earlier part of our conversation, It, it I didn't feel like I was learning more, um, is one. And two, it, I said if I was going to leave Twitch, um, it would have to be for a smaller company because I wanted to get back into the seat of having impact and being at the ground level of something. Um, and I wanted to have that feeling of like, OK, something I put out there is going to get immediately taken up and then I can have to quickly respond and, and be rapid. I love that pace. Uh, I think that pace is is motivating and invigorating uh, for myself. It's not for everybody. Some people, you know, very much enjoy the pace of something like working at a Twitch and I respect that, but not for
2: me. It seems like your your craft and your love is actually being on that cutting edge and being able to impact change. It's not necessarily-
1: My passion is figuring out and creating the best conditions for products to be created. I think that meta conversation is really interesting for me. And so, having seen all these different ways of how to build product i want to take all those learnings and apply it at this level of a startup and test them and see what works like how do we make sure that we build the right things for customers how do we prioritize how do we Uh, learn? How do we build the right analytics? How do we do road mapping? Like I've collected a lot of that over my career and I want to now apply it and see how that goes and build a machine and an engine that works for this company and if it plays out, see if I can adopt that as a thesis that can be shared outward. That's that's what motivates me.
0: I I think that's fascinating because uh, I have the same view and I know uh, Philippe Cannons (laughs) who was another guest that was on our show has the exact same view where uh, the focus is less so about a specific product and rather than figuring out how do you solve a problem? And it doesn't matter what the problem is. It could be a cloud service, it could be editing software, it could be video software, whatever it is, but just that thrill of figuring out the repeatable and scalable process to product design, product management, that's the kind of the uh, best aspect of I think of the PM career track.
1: Right, and then in particular, what is your flavor of that and knowing and reflecting on that, right? Like it's one thing to build a machine. It's another thing to be self-reflecting on how you did that and establish your brand around that and become desirable and become marketable and become a person of of record for this. That um, is what it's all about, right? When you're trying to make, you know, make a way for yourself in the universe, you want to be able to repeatedly produce things that people care about and you have your own way of doing it. And so I'm still discovering that, but you know, uh, I think I'm on to something. We'll see if it works out.
2: So for our listeners that are interested in, you know, shifting to product management from maybe a more traditional software engineering role or maybe it's design, maybe, maybe it's something totally different like HR. um, And you have to advise on this quite a bit, I'm sure. What's one of your, what's coming some of your top pieces of advice um, for people kind of in that move? or looking into it?
1: Well, so first of all, I would say in your current company, try and pick up product-related deliverables and start executing on them or ask your PM to uh, give you some space to help out. Um, Because I think the only proven way that works is to try and find something within a company and move there. Every other path is not something that I could prescribe unless it's a case-by-case basis. So another path is, Leave a company and try and join as an entry level PM, or leave a company and join an associate product management program, or leave and become an intern. All of those things come with risk, and risk that is shared by you and the company that is trying to hire you. And usually, a company will be excited to hire you as a PM if you know their product decently well and you know the space. The problem with trying to transition over is you clearly don't, unless you've been in that vertical for a really long time and you have a known brand and you've done some product related work, it's really hard to jump from A to B. So the first thing I would say is if you're at a current company and deciding you wanna be a PM, try and figure out your way to do it at your company. And if in the end, you can at least claim the title of product management, even if you just did a few things, that's enough to get your foot in the door to start learning at a larger company. So in my personal experience, that is what I did at IBM. I said, I want to be this PM. I started doing product related work as a designer and then moved over and made my case for it. The second thing I would say is there is no book. There is no degree there is no like article that you can read that will tell you how pm really works but there are people who can tell you (laughs) and coach you as to how pm works so if you are interested in being a pm you should find a mentor or a coach that does this every day and go seek them out hire them whatever buy them coffee or go in a professional relationship i'm a professional career coach that's what i do so if you're interested in pm you should seek those people out because they will be able to understand your ter- career trajectory within a company and help you make that navigating, uh, uh, help you go on that journey within your company to navigate your way to a PM. So.
2: And just so we're clear here, are you, are you, you currently have room for coaching? Um, Absolutely. Are you available for coaching for our listeners? Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Where, where can people learn more about that?
1: You can just PM me on LinkedIn uh, or on Twitter at Turin money and happy to chat. Um, I, I I basically think that anyone can be a PM or a designer um, to a certain extent, but it does require discipline and it requires like you know relentless curiosity, so to speak.
0: But yeah, I think it's it a hundred percent resonates with me. Another point that you called out is the fact that there there is just no course on product management that can teach you everything. There's no, I, I, even I think, even if we try to put together a course on product management, it's always going to be a very surface level. It's going to be very kind of the basics of, you know, well, talk to customers, which is great, <laughs> like fantastic. Now I know that I need to talk to customers, but what are the pitfalls that I need to avoid? How do I talk to customers to actually get insights and not just, you know, go to my engineering team and repeat what customers told me? All these things they come with experience, which is very, very hard to formalize. And I, it resonates with me 100% that you need to have a mentor or somebody that has kind of did the trial by fire. They know what they're doing. They ship things. They delivered products that can tell you of this is how it works in the real world. Just like we know with academia and real world, where you know you learn a lot in college about things like. Um, you know, algorithms and the perf- on o- of an algorithm, which is all important. But once you actually start delivering software and shipping products, you realize that there's so much more to that than just kind of knowing the performance of an algorithm. Cool. So um, at that turn, uh, other than the Twitter and LinkedIn, where else can people find you? Are you writing any blogs, uh, newsletters, anything of interest?
1: Lately, I just post on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, I don't have time like everybody else who starts a sub stack or whatever. I feel like I start those things and I never finish <laughs> them. So I try to be pithy and to the point and, uh, you know, uh, focus on my time, like one on one, like through this coaching thing. So I feel like if you want to learn more, just kind of follow those feeds and then reach out and ask me specific questions.
2: Yeah, I feel like your uh, Twitter feed, it's one of my favorite feeds to follow. So um, you're always sharing your insights there, uh, keeping it short and sweet and to the point. So good follow. Highly recommend.
0: Fantastic. Well, uh, Tarun, thank you so much for coming on the show, uh, sharing your insights. I learn a lot, just like I always do in these shows. I, I feel like uh, we're, we're we're doing this for our listeners, but at the end of the day, I think Courtney and I, we become better people just by listening to uh, our guests talk, and I'm sure we learn a lot from you. Uh, and hopefully, we'll get to see you again on one of the future episodes.
1: Sure. Happy to have you here, and uh, thanks for having me.
0: Excellent. Thank you. See you all later.